Hello and welcome to the weekend wrap for the week on Wednesday. This is the 19th of September 2021 and we are still in the midst of a global pandemic. There is however some good news that I want to share with people about what the union movement has been doing and what workers have been winning. This week the Australian Workers Union, the AWU, won five million dollars in back pay for workers at Blue Scope Steel. This is around forty to $45,000 per worker who was impacted by this outcome. Fantastic work by the workers at Blue Scope Steel in union, AWU, winning for workers. Meanwhile, Dulux workers, people might know Dulux as that paint brand with the big shaggy dog. That's certainly how I think of them. The workers there were presented with a pay and conditions agreement that would have seen cuts, that would have seen less job security, would have seen worse outcomes for workers, and 100% said no. The United Workers Union organizing those workers, getting those workers to stand up and fight for their own rights, fight for better pay and conditions. So that's some good news to start this weekend wrap about some of the things happening in the workplace, in the world of work. Of course, lots of people in Victoria, those of us who are chocoholics, will also know that Cadbury workers, 360 Cadbury workers, have voted to strike. There are workers at Cadbury who have been casuals doing the same work on the same shifts and the same rosters for 10 years. 10 years a casual. This is unbelievable and yet is happening more and more across the Australian economy. So congratulations to those AMWU workers, those AMWU members at Cadbury who have voted to stand up and fight for their right to a more secure work. Of course, there's a whole range of other big news stories that we need to cover today as well. The first that I want to get into is Australia's decision to purchase nuclear submarines. There's lots of talk, lots of chatter about this. It's probably one of the biggest geopolitical stories that we will cover probably for the year. Now, what is actually happening, what has actually happened, and what does it mean? Well, what is actually happening is that Australia will spend $90 billion to purchase eight Virginia-class nuclear-powered fast-attack submarines. Now, these submarines, up until 2019, were commonly equipped with nuclear warhead Tomahawk cruise missiles. It's that they still carry the Tomahawk cruise missiles. They are now not normally equipped with nuclear warheads. That's not to say they can't be. The Virginia class has a highly enriched uranium reactor, which allows it to very quickly be converted to a nuclear platform. We have also cancelled our contract with France to build and develop 12 conventional diesel submarines. Now, nuclear submarines and diesel submarines, you might think, well, much of a muchness. They function very differently and they serve very different purposes. A nuclear-powered submarine is designed to sit in the water for extended periods of time. They are usually designed as a land attack vehicle. That is, a vehicle that can launch missiles from underwater at land targets in the result of a conflict. 
Why do you need that capability? Because if you are a nuclear power and another nuclear power launches intercontinental ballistic missiles at your cities or new or military targets, the ability to launch what's called a second strike or have a second strike capability, such as a submarine that is not going to be impacted or is highly unlikely to be impacted by missile launches against your home country, is acts as a deterrent to other nations. Now, of course, the United States already has nuclear attack submarines. It already has long-range nuclear weapons. Australia does not have those things. We do not have a nuclear industry that supports nuclear power generation. We do not have nuclear facilities at or near our submarine ports. This is a significant shift. Diesel conventional submarines are used primarily as anti-ship weapons. That is, a submarine attacks and sinks enemy troop ships, enemy merchant vessels, protects harbour entrances. They're used primarily nearer to your home territory. We were buying 12 of those. That made sense. Most people saw that as a good defensive posture for Australia. We rely heavily on international shipping. We have a number of ports we need to protect. And most of any potential threats to Australia in in the form of an invasion would come from countries with large land armies, but relatively low-tech navies. And therefore, conventional diesel submarines would be what was needed to protect Australia. Moving to nuclear submarines suddenly makes us much more of a threat to countries like China, for example. China, of course, has condemned this decision, as has France. France has taken the unprecedented step of withdrawing their ambassador, both from Australia and from the United States. People should remember that there would be no United States if it wasn't for France. Without France's intervention in the American Revolutionary War, it is undeniable that Great Britain would have succeeded in making the colonies of the United States into the Commonwealth of America. Now, that, of course, is a long time ago. In more recent history, the last hundred years or so, America and France have fought together against Imperial Germany in World War II, Nazi Germany in World War II, and, of course, in North Korea, in Vietnam, and Iraq and Afghanistan. These these two countries are deeply aligned. For France to recall their ambassador is a very significant move. For them to recall their ambassador from Australia is a very significant move. We should remember France is a Pacific nation. There are parts of France in the Pacific that vote in French elections. We may not think of the Pacific Islands as being France, but the French and the people on those islands do. They have numerous times rejected the idea of separating from and becoming independent from France. So France sees itself as having a role in the Pacific, an important role in the Pacific. China, of course, has a one-China policy, and many defense analysts, I think, struggle with how poorly our politicians deal with this concept. China sees China as the middle kingdom of heaven. It sees China, Tibet, Hong Kong, Macau, and Taiwan as China, and sees that as the center of the world. We in the West struggle to comprehend that China 
does not have some further territorial ambitions. And of course, the issues with the South China Sea, it's important to note that even we call it the South China Sea, mean that there is a sense of conflict. There is a sense of impending conflagration with China. However, China's ambitions really are to reunify China. When you consider that and juxtapose it to how it perhaps views the United States, Australia and the UK, one could be forgiven for wondering who here is the aggressor. The United States for a long time had colonised the Philippines. Guam is still an American territory. The United Kingdom has recently sent an aircraft carrier into the Pacific. Of course, Hong Kong was a British territory for nearly a hundred years. In the eyes of China, Australia intervened in the internal affairs of Indonesia when it came to East Timor and gathered an international coalition to do so. Now, I'm not saying that anything that we've done in the West in relation to Hong Kong or East Timor is in any way incorrect, improper or not consistent with democratic values. What I'm suggesting is that to China, that views these things through a different lens and applies a different set of political cultural values, it could be seen as a group of nations that are prepared to intervene and interfere in the relations and internal relations of other countries. This is where the tension actually stems from. All of the talk that trade would bring peace and the China-Australia Free Trade Agreement, RCEP and all these things would bring peace really hasn't come about because there is this tension. There is this geopolitical different lens. It's like two people looking at it, the same thing but through different sets of glasses. The lenses are so different that what they see might actually be entirely different. Now, for us, we're buying nuclear submarines because we think they can stay in the water longer, they're more high-tech, they give us better defence capability. For China, what they see is Australia acting as a proxy for the United States. An Australian nuclear-powered submarine sitting in the South China Sea will be assumed to have nuclear capabilities. Because if you're a serious military planner and there is a submarine that could wipe out between 12 and 28 of your major cities before you're even able to launch a single missile, then you have to assume that that capability is real. You can't simply take Australia's word for it. And I don't think we're going to show Chinese military officials through each and every one of these new submarines. Putting aside the fact that they're not going to be here until about 2040. These are long-term, highly expensive geopolitical problems that we are creating for ourselves. We've essentially lost the support of an ally in France. We've angered our major trading partner who has no territorial ambitions over Australia. And at the same time, Joe Biden can't even remember the name of our prime minister, that fella from down under. Cheers, pal. It's embarrassing. 
And it's important to note as well that this deal will likely cost hundreds, if not thousands of jobs in Australia. The deal with France included significant build and maintenance capacities right here in Australia. Now, those shipyards will not function. Even if they get built into this deal in some way, it will be years before that capacity is called upon, during which time Australia, because we don't have a policy of having domestic ports serviced by domestic ships, doesn't really have the demand to keep those shipyards operating. This policy driven valley of death for the industry is something that Morrison has decided to do. This is a deliberate, conscious decision by the Morrison government to destroy jobs at a cost of $90 billion. Frankly, the whole thing is terrifying. A government that is prepared to spend that money to destroy Australian jobs while making Australian cities more likely to be a nuclear target, while making Australian forces less safe on operations overseas, while angering our partners, who, by the way, France will play a major role in deciding whether or not Australia gets a trade agreement with the EU. This is a government that really just wants to sit in the cockpit of fast planes and cut the ribbon on new ships. It's disturbingly poor politics, disturbingly poor governance, and frankly, more than a little bit dangerous. Hopefully, hopefully, common sense will prevail and the heat will come out of the situation. But We're a long, long way from anything actually rolling into the sea. So let's wait and see what happens. Morrison's immediate problems, of course, haven't gone away either. The Porter problem continues to roll along. And as we discussed during the week, his blind trust million dollar donation to his legal fund has been called into question by journalists, by politicians, and today on Insiders, the finance minister, Simon Birmingham, was asked about it and really couldn't give a straight answer. It was clear that Simon Birmingham disagrees with what Christian Porter has done. He refused to condemn it, but he also refused to support it. He flubbed it, he dodged it, he ducked and weaved. And in doing so, he looked ridiculous. He looked like a minister who was ashamed to be part of a government where Christian Porter as a minister. And one can understand why. Of all the disgraces and of all of the scandals that have plagued the Morrison government, the idea that a Morrison government minister would take an anonymous million dollars from someone who no one can identify and have it not declared in any kind of transparent or open way is perhaps the most threat to our democracy that the Morrison scandals have brought about. Yes, there have been car park rorts and sports rorts and sexual abuse and sexual harassment scandals and many awful things. But in terms of the fundamental threat to democracy, the idea that an individual or perhaps a group of individuals can buy their way into the good graces of a federal government minister through anonymous donations is perhaps the most terrifying. Now, there's no suggestion here that Christian Porter has promised anyone anything or has even been asked for anything by anyone. The donation does appear to be anonymous, but that in itself is terrifying. 
Is someone going to pop up out of the woodwork at some point in the future? Are they waiting for Christian Porter to become Attorney General again before they point out that they were the donor? There are so many unanswered questions and so many dangerous possibilities for our democracy that something has to happen. This isn't one of those scenarios where hopefully it'll all blow over because the longer it goes on, the worse the potential repercussions can become. People might forget about car park rorts. They might forget about sports rorts. People might even start to forget about how awful and uh, terrible the environment for women is in the Morrison government and the parliament that it runs. But at the back of everyone's mind, the back of every journalist's mind. Whenever Christian Porter makes a decision, whenever Scott Morrison promotes him, the question will be raised again. Is this the point where the anonymous donor comes out of the woodwork and makes a demand? We just don't know. My tip is that Christian Porter will end up on the back bench at some point between now and Christmas and stay there until the election. I don't think Christian Porter's going anywhere. I think Christian Porter thinks he can ride everything out. The man has an ego the size of Jupiter and, frankly, as much, almost as much gas. There's no question in my mind that he will contest the next election. I do believe that Morrison will want him to go to the backbench to try and have people forget, just like they did with Bridget McKenzie and sports rorts, just like Barnaby spent a bit of time back there as well. Don't worry. Christian, I'm sure you'll get resurrected at some point in the not-too-distant future. We also need to talk about COVID. Today has been a big day for COVID, with Victoria announcing its roadmap and with New South Wales having another 13 deaths. It's important to note that of the 13 people who died from COVID today in New South Wales, 10 were younger than the average age of death. This is increasingly a pandemic that is hospitalising and killing younger people. The days where right-wing commentators could say, well, the only people who die from COVID are the people who are already past the average age of death anyway, those days are gone. The majority of people dying in this country and in other countries from COVID-19, Delta strain, are younger than the average age of death. 84% of the people diagnosed with COVID in Victoria and in hospital with COVID from Victoria are under 50. This is significantly different, significantly different. We're seeing thousands of cases. We expect to see thousands more. Our vaccination rates in Australia are only 37%. All of the talk of 60 and 70 and 80, that's all lovely. All these pockets where there's these feel-good stories, it's great to have those feel-good stories. Of course it is. But we have to be realistic and get down to brass tacks. And brass tacks are that until you're double vaccinated, you are not fully vaccinated. And our rate of fully vaccinated Australians is 37%. That's half as many as Spain. That's far less than America and far less than the UK. We have to increase vaccinations. We have to lift the vaccination rate. We have to have more vaccines in arms. 
And I'm not talking single dose, I'm talking fully vaccinated. So let's get focused on what matters when it comes to COVID. That is fully vaccinating everybody, not just over 16s, not just one dose, not just one section or one part of the workforce or one set of LGAs, but fully vaccinating as many Australians as possible of all ages. That means getting to that 90, that 95% level. That means looking at places like Finland. That means looking at places like Spain. That means lifting our rates of full vaccination to the levels of Portugal, not looking at places like America where large sections like large sections of the community like Texas, like Florida, simply refuse to get vaccinated. And what we're seeing now and what we saw this weekend again, as Van talked about on the week on Wednesday, is these proto-fascist movements harnessing people's disenchantment, people's frustration, people's anger about COVID. I wish the pandemic was over too. You know, there's no question we're all frustrated and we're all sick of it. You know, but being sick of something doesn't mean it goes away. Just because we don't want to have to deal with it anymore doesn't mean we don't have to deal with it. And COVID is real and it's there. The proto-fascist movements that this weekend attacked police officers and resulted in 10 injured police officers just in the state of Victoria, with six being hospitalised, are trying to undermine our democracy. They are using foreign propaganda, the likes of George Christensen, the likes of One Nation, are harnessing rhetoric, propaganda and actions that are being used by foreign agents overseas to destabilise democracy, to make angry and frustrated people even more angry and more frustrated, to, to suggest to them that democracy can't help them, to suggest to them that their own activity, their own engagement, their decision to join a union, which you can do right now at australianunions.org.au slash wow, that's W-O-W for the week on Wednesday, that somehow or another you don't control the mechanisms by which your society is shaped. And we know that in democracy we do. We do. We also know that in a democracy... We want to be protected and we want to make sure the most vulnerable are protected and we elect our governments to do that. And as frustrating as this entire situation may be, the rants and ravings of proto-fascist propaganda from overseas are not the answer. They don't offer a real solution. What they're screaming for in Perth is more freedom. Well, in Perth, they have all the freedom one could possibly want. They don't have to wear masks. There are no limitations on movement. There are no limitations on where people can go or how many people can go. It's ridiculous. And it's all happening because, of course, for most people, the idea that you would protest during a pandemic is anathema. So for the counter-protests, the people who demonstrate that the couple of hundred a couple of hundred, and it is literally a couple of hundred. The police have said they expected between five and seven thousand people, and what turned up was between five and seven hundred people at all the protests across Victoria. This is a small cadre of proto fascists. 
They are trying to paint themselves as an alternative to democracy. They're by by espousing that they are the true defenders of freedom. Well, friends, there is no freedom unless there is freedom for all. If freedom means sacrificing those who are most vulnerable, if it means exposing our children to a deadly virus, if it means that people between 40 and 60 have more chance of dying from COVID than retiring, that's not freedom. Now, I'm not saying we're at that point now, but some of the things that these proto-fascist movements are suggesting we should be doing, the things that they are calling for, could easily put us on that pathway. And it is unacceptable. It is unacceptable. And the vast majority of Australians agree. So you should talk to your workmates. You should talk to your family. You should talk to your friends. And if some people think that what's being said and those those pro-COVID protesters are right, ask them why they think they're right. Ask them why they think that that's a better way to go than to join their union, than to talk to their union, than to write to their local MP, than to seek representation from their local council, to see what's going on in their own community to keep people safe. Ask them the questions. Don't have fights with them. Don't try and have conflict with them, but ask them why. Try and understand why so that you could help them find new avenues, new avenues to relieve that frustration, that anger, so that they can turn it into a positive, so they can be organized in their community, so that like the workers at Cadbury, they can stand up for themselves to have a secure job, so that they're not expressing their anger through some proto-fascist movement, that like the workers at Julux, they know they have the power to say no when the elites and the bosses demand they take less. And like the workers at Blue Scope, they know they can recover what is theirs by joining together to demand it and to win it. And that is what is fair and what is just. That's the weekend wrap for the week on Wednesday this week. I hope you've enjoyed it. Thank you so much to everyone who got in contact with me over the last seven days. I had a lovely Sunday off last weekend. It was very nice. I appreciate everybody's patience with that. Of course, Van will be joining me again this Wednesday for the week on Wednesday. And I've also done that special guest spot for the On The Job podcast. If you haven't listened to On The Job yet, get onto it. On The Job, they talk about all the workplace issues. We had some great discussion, myself, Francis Leach and Sally Rugg, about what mandatory vaccinations might mean in the disability and aged care sector. Of course, we're seeing more of that discussion happening. It's going to be part of the national conversation. So tune in, have a listen to that discussion. I'm sure we'll talk about it more as the weeks roll on. I hope you've had a great weekend. I hope you have a great week ahead. If you are in lockdown, do take care and remember to be kind to yourself and to each other.